Welcome to Wealthy Behavior, talking money and wealth with Heritage Financial, the podcast that digs into the topics, strategies, and behaviors that help busy and successful people build and protect their personal wealth. I'm your host, Sammy Azuz, the president and CEO of Heritage Financial, a Boston-based wealth management firm working with high net worth families across the country for longer than 25 years. Now let's talk about the wealthy behaviors that are key to a rich life. Welcome to the June Investment Edition of the Wealthy Behavior Podcast, where I talk to our Chief Investment Officer, Bob Weiss, about what's going on in the markets and what you need to know about the investment universe right now. Bob, in terms of broad market moves, there's not as much to talk about since we last recorded. May was relatively flat for stocks and bonds, but that doesn't mean there isn't a lot to discuss, probably starting with last night's House vote on the debt ceiling. We're recording this on June 1st and what the Fed might do at its next meeting. I know we've seen some signaling from Fed governors recently that they may pause and not hike this month. I think it's in a couple of weeks, but you're also seeing something in the data that may concern them. Yeah, with the Fed, a couple of things going on. So so they're meeting in two weeks and um, yesterday was uh, kind of a big day on Fed watch um, in both directions. So a couple uh, Fed governors have come out and have used the words pause and skip at the next meeting. We should pause, we should skip, meaning not increase rates. And uh, they support it by saying, talking about what we talked about at our last podcast, uh, the, the, the delayed effects of monetary policy. So you, you raise rates and it takes a while for that to trickle through. So they're saying maybe we shouldn't, let's not raise rates, let's pause, let's skip at the next meeting. And you know, give the uh, give markets and economy more time to react to the, these higher rates. So um, that's a you could call it dovish. That's friendly to the markets. They they like hearing that. So that's that's kind of good news on that front. Um, one piece of data on, on the other side is um, something we also have talked about a number of times on this podcast that that we look at closely. The Jolts report. It's uh, job opening uh, labor turnover survey. Think of it as um, the, the headline number is, is the job openings. So think of it as like the help wanted ads out there. And it peaked at about 12 million job openings uh, a few months ago, and it had been on a pretty steady decline. Um, and it was expected to come in around 9 million and um, was it 9.4 million. It was expected to come in. So coming down from 12. So the, the Fed likes seeing that, uh, likes seeing the number of job openings go down. And instead, it went up. Uh, it came in at 10.1 million, hmm. so pretty big surprise. Um, and that's kind of in the wrong direction. Um, so what they do with the job openings is they take the ratio of job openings and divide it by unemployed people. And um, the ratio right now is 1.8. So they call that imbalance in the labor force um, because there's 1.8 jobs for every unemployed person, ideally you're closer to one to one. There's one unemployed person, there's one job for them. When you have a ratio of almost two, which is where it is now, that's where um, you, you get inflationary dynamics because then the worker can get two job offers and negotiate pay and get higher pay. And that that trickles through to inflation. So, so the, do, you, do you think that kind of runs counter to what those two governors have come out and said recently, or is that just something you're, you're monitoring and you, you see... A reasonable case for a pause just to to allow the data to filter through like they mentioned yeah i'd put more stock in what the governors are saying which is sure. good so when they're saying pause i'll you know i'm sure they're aware although i don't know the exact time and i think this all came out yesterday i don't know what 
the order was. In general, markets have shifted from, I think it was about 70, 30, um, 70% probability of an increase in June to now it's about a 70% probability of staying uh, at the current level in June in two weeks. So despite this one data point being a little concerning overall, it's, it's leaning more towards keeping rates where they are. Yeah. And a pause is just that. It's a pause. It doesn't mean that they wouldn't raise uh, rates again in the future. It doesn't mean that the impact of of the hikes that they've already made has necessarily done enough. It doesn't mean anything besides that word pause, which would I think the markets would respond favorably to that if we didn't have another quarter point hike, at least in June. So then we get to last night's vote on the debt ceiling. Your favorite website, time.gov, got a reprieve. Looks like it's still going to be alive for a while. Uh, as I mentioned, we're recording on June 1st. Uh, they voted to, the House did, to raise the debt ceiling. I don't even remember what the bill is called. They have these funky long names for bills these days. And the market is up, up just over a percent so far today. Are you surprised it's not up more, the S&P, just given how much concerns we've heard about related to the debt ceiling and this impending potential doom? Yeah, I would say that the market today, it, it's its tough to tell you to really ever explain exactly why the market's doing what it's doing in a day. But I think it's more moving on the Fed dovishness, what we let off with than the vote. Um, because when we went into the weekend, the long weekend, uh, there wasn't much news or optimism. And then over the weekend, there were uh, there was the deal between McCarthy and Biden. And that was a big headline. McCarthy and Biden struck a deal and it's going to sure. vote. Yep. We opened up down on Tuesday. Yeah. So it's like, well, market really could care less about that. When you look at where we are now compared to where we closed, we're still about flat. Um, so I, I think kind of the, the takeaway from the market reaction to the House vote is that the market's just kind of laughing at us and our clients for even for making a big deal of this to begin with. The, all along, they were confident that a deal would get done and um, didn't really price in the probability of or possibility of a default because they didn't view it as you know real. And it's just a non-event with the whole thing from the same yeah, I mean, that does seem to be the case. Hopefully they weren't whistling past the graveyard because if that vote didn't happen, <laughs> if that vote didn't happen, it would have meant that the markets were not pricing in any kind of delay or going to the midnight hour on these uh, negotiations. So I guess all's well that ends well so far. I don't think there's any expectation that the Senate won't be able to get it through without amendments and we can punt this somewhat absurd topic for it looks like at least another two years two years yep. two years all right so we've also seen something interesting in the markets and interesting is probably an understatement with one stock in particular nvidia which is up 173 percent year to date with over a hundred percent of that coming in may and now looking back 10 years because of that recent performance, it's returned 60% per year over the last 10 years to become over a trillion dollar company, which is rare. It's not the only one, but it is rare. There's a lot that we could get into about this stock. If you owned it outright, kudos to you. And I hope you're taking some gains off the table. I don't know if you anticipated this last burst of AI-driven gains. If you didn't own it outright, 
there's a good chance you may have still exposure to it through a broad-based mutual fund because it is in a lot of US index funds and other broadly diversified strategies, including a couple that we utilize. But I know that you want to use it more as a way to explain index construction, something we started talking about last episode when we got into the Dow versus the S&P 500. Yeah, just to start, NVIDIA, it's in the news. Um, it's been in the news a lot recently, and they make semiconductor chips, and their chips are powerful, and they're uh, kind of in the, the trifecta of the right places to be right now, which um, range from crypto mining, where they've been. So if you want to mine Bitcoin, you need NVIDIA chips, um, to gaming, which has been popular, you know, video games, high-end video games use NVIDIA chips. And then um, the, the real hot one recently is AI, mm -hmm. uh, like ChatGPT uses um, NVIDIA chips. So um, they're just kind of uh, right place, right time with that. And as a result, the stock um, has skyrocketed. They, they did come out with a strong earnings report, um, but it is pricing in a, a lot of future growth. So despite earnings coming in strong. Um, the stock is now, it's, it's trading close to a valuation of a trillion dollars. It's, it's about 940 billion right now, um, which is about 218 times earnings. So a PE ratio of over 200 um, on a trailing basis, on a forward basis. So if you take analyst projections and say, well, what are they gonna earn over the next year? It's about 84 times forward earnings. So it's pretty expensive. Um, just give people a little bit of context to that, Bob. What's the range of PE ratios for the S and P five hundred when it's, you know, fairly valued or or you know not exaggeratedly cheap or expensive in either yeah. direction? Yeah, like like fifteen to twenty times earnings is a yeah. typically a pretty average, reasonable level. Um, a way of thinking about a PE ratio price to earnings is if you flip it, sometimes it becomes a little easier to understand. So a PE of twenty. You pay twenty dollars for a dollar of earnings. If you flip it, one over twenty, e over p, you pay, you get a dollar of earnings, uh, and you pay twenty dollars for it. That's a five percent earnings yield, one mm -hmm. divided by twenty. And if you buy a stock at a PE of twenty, um, and they don't grow, then in theory your return is five percent. So that because their the earnings yield is five percent, and so you can get five percent plus the growth. Um, so that, that's just kind of rule of thumb about a P of 15 to 24 stock markets where you see US stocks typically. So at 84, at a forward, then a way to think of it is if they hit the forward expectations, they're at 84. Well, if they double earnings again, then they're at 42. And then if they double earnings again, then they're at 21. Um, and now they're a fairly priced stock. So you know, the, the price is right today if they hit their forward estimates and then double earnings two more times, um, right. which is, it's a lot. It's, it's a big ask. Um, so it, it's just, it's been in the news. Um, most of our clients do own it. Uh, like whether you're owning um, index funds or like DFA, US Core, a fund um, that a lot of clients own, um, it, it owns it. It's one of the top, it's about the 20th largest holding in there. Um, so our clients own it. So just stepping back to how um, we construct equity allocations. Um, well, and the, the one other point with this that I wanted to tie in is if you look at markets year to date, 
Um, if you take the, the S&P 500, this is through, this is a couple of days old, um, but the um, S&P 500 is up about 8%. Uh, if you do the S&P 500 equal weighted, where you take those 500 stocks and just equal weight them for the year, it's down about 1% to 2%. So you're looking at plus 8 versus, but if you equal weight the S&P, you're down 1% or 2%. So about a, a 9 or 10% spread. Um, so it, it, you know, looking at that, it, it, you know, begs the question, well, what's the right way to invest? What's better? Should year to date, the price weighted approach has led to a, a superior return than the equal weighted approach. If you look long-term, like look at 50 plus years of data, equal weighted does do better than price weighted because price weighted, um, you're putting most of your money in the largest companies. And over time you see mean reversion, you see you know, small companies grow up and become big and you get a great return and big companies crumble and fall down and, and you, you can lose on that um, rather than seeing your winners just win indefinitely and become monopolies. So price weighted to get an equal weighted to give a little bit of a, an example, even though you explained it well, equal weighted is if there's 500 stocks in the S&P 500, every stock is one 500th of the index yes. and that's its weighting. Price weighting is the bigger the company, the bigger its market cap, the bigger its percentage in the index. So, you know, I'm looking at the S&P 500 right now. The two biggest names in the index are Apple and Microsoft. And that's just because they're the two biggest companies in the index. One's seven plus, but they're both around 7% of the weighting of the S&P 500. And so you're talking about a year where the price weighted index has outperformed sharply the equal weighted index but over time it's not always the case and the equal weighted index has done better yeah long term equal weighted index has done better and uh what we do is if you if you had to pick between one of the two we probably would pick the price weighted index because you are um kind of embracing the wisdom of crowds. Like market participants are saying that Apple is worth more than any other company in the world. So um, you're kind of piggybacking on that research. But what we also do is not just look at price, but look at earnings. So if you rank all the companies in order by those that earn the most money to the least, and then a different way is if you rank them based on book value. So rank them based on you know assets minus liabilities. So companies with the most assets, minus liabilities on the balance sheet, most owner's equity to the least. And if you kind of merge those three together, um, that's simplistically put um, what we do. So you're taking a combination of the price, but also ranking based on earnings and ranking based on book value. And um, by pulling those last two, earnings and book value, that gets you a little bit more of um it's like a blend of equal weight and uh, price weighted. So it ends up shifting some chips off the biggest names into the, the smaller names. There's also something that we do in addition in, in that's different than the S&P 500 is that we do own small caps. We do own mid caps and small cap companies, which the S&P 500 is a large cap index. Right. Yep. Yeah. So in the, the true US total market, about 3000 companies is our approach. So Yes, you have the NVIDIA in there. You have the C3 AI, the, the AI stocks that are hot. They're captured in there, but there's also you know about 3,000 other stocks in the portfolio. So I saw a chart the other day because it's interesting. You get into these environments where the S&P 500 just 
is absolutely knocking the cover off the ball. And people will just say, let me just own that. Let me just own the U.S. Here's the top 10 holdings right now in the S&P. Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, NVIDIA, Alphabet, Alphabet, two share classes, Berkshire, which is about 30% Apple, uh, Meta platforms, Facebook, Tesla, and then United Health Group, which doesn't you know seem to belong with the others. But you're basically owning a mega cap tech-related portfolio that's doing very well this year, but you're owning a very concentrated portfolio in one area of the market with similar portfolio characteristics. And I recently saw a chart that was talking about the difficulty of owning the biggest names in the market after they've become the biggest names in the market versus owning them before. And it was it was interesting, and we'll, we'll try to share it, but owning the top 10 biggest companies before they became the biggest is a lot more profitable than loading up on them afterwards. And in the chart, in the 10 years before they became you know top 10 companies, they earned 10% a year. The five years before, they earned 19% a year. The three years before, they earned 24% a year. And then the three years after, they were flat, just up 0.7% a year, down 0.6 over five years, and then lost a percent and a half over the next 10 years. So if you will incorporate some small cap into your portfolio, if you will weight things a little bit differently than the S&P 500, you will have the opportunity to catch some of these winners before they become the winners versus owning a bigger stake of them afterwards. Well said. <laughs> Maybe one other way of thinking about it is if you look, especially now, like Apple and Microsoft, both at 7% weights in the S&P, for those companies to outperform, if you were just a stock pick and say, I'm going to buy some, well, they've done great. I'm going to buy some Apple and Microsoft. Um, they basically wouldn't, that 7% needs to grow. They need to become 8%, 9%, 10% of the S&P. I mean, you can technically have like fallout of the S&P and turnover in the underlying names, but really you'd need to see them grow. And if you look historically, that's about as big as companies get as a share of I mean, the S&P 500, it's 500 companies. So right. to be 7% of it, um, to, to bet that they're on their way, you know, from 7% up to 10% each, the, the, just the, the, the law of numbers makes it, difficult, very difficult for that to happen. It does make it very difficult for it to happen eventually, but while they are performing well, it also makes it very difficult to outperform the S&P 500. Because even if you own Apple and Microsoft, but you're being prudent with your client assets and you're not owning them at 7.4% for Apple and 7% for Microsoft, let's say you own them both at 5% and they continue to be top performers, you're underweight and you will lag the S&P just because you didn't want to have a name that was more than 5% in your portfolio, which some people think is, is very prudent and reasonable. So be patient with your strategy when you do start to see big names like this leading the market because you may not want to have your top 10 holdings while well, your top nine be tech-related behemoths. Yeah, and that's where we are. Like in uh, the DFA US Core 2 fund, they're at about 5% in each, 5% in Apple, 5% in Microsoft. So still a, a decent allocation, just not as high as seven. So 
it's it's kind of like that's the structure put five instead of seven take that extra two and sprinkle that across more value names smaller company names to get more diversification in there more sources of return yeah absolutely so bob the other day we also had a webinar with lizanne saunders who was the managing director and chief investment strategist at charles schwab we haven't shared any of the material from that because we're not allowed to replay it but i did want to get your thoughts on some of her key takeaways from people who weren't able to listen. Uh, we started with the debt ceiling, which I'll skip for now because fingers crossed, I do believe it's resolved for a couple more years. But then she jumped into, or we jumped into a question that we've been getting lately about concerns that the dollar would lose its reserve currency status. And she just said, there's no there there. We're not seeing it. She's not seeing it. It won't happen. It's not something to be concerned about. But that dollar weakening can be okay uh, for global stocks in a portfolio. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Um, on the dollar losing its reserve currency status, if you look just internally, just at the U.S., you could say uh, you could make a case for it. But then it, it's well, well, who's next? And um, there's really no other currency that's that's you know looks good right now. It's not like the euro or the yen is um you know, you know in great shape you, you want to a, a bearish case about the dollar starts with debt to gdp and the, the us um you know fiscal situation in japan is like three times worse than the us and and europe's a mess so that there's the, losing its status as reserve currency um agree with her and that, that not being a concern but um the dollar has been strong and has outperformed foreign currencies for the most part of the last decade and um, see, if you look historically, if you you know stretch a chart 50 years, you see that the dollar ebbs and flows against foreign currencies generally. Um, and you know seeing it give back some of that and getting closer to where it's been on average um, definitely um, is in the cards. And um, that, that's something we, we've seen since um, October, I believe of last year, if you, um, on the whole international has outperformed and a good part of it's been from uh, dollar weakening. Got it. The other thing we talked about is there have been some major bank failures this year, some of the biggest in history. And I asked her whether she thought the banking system was sound and if we were looking at a repeat of 2008. And her you know, short version of her response was, we're not looking at 2008. You know, There is some issues with certain banks that are mostly unique to those banks. And that there may be credit tightening as a result of what's gone on in the banking industry, which could flow through to corporate earnings. And I think we've talked about this before and maybe even help with the inflation front, but you know, not 2008 part two. Yeah, I agree with that as well. Not 2008 part two. I, I am, and I think we might've talked about this before too, a little concerned about um, the number of banks in the US. There's 4,200 banks in the US no other country in the world has even 400. So I saw a chart the other day, um, you know, all these countries have like 100, 200 banks and the US is 4,200. And when you think about mobile banking these days and how much you can do online and like you can deposit a check online, you can open an account online, we, we probably do have too many banks. And with the recent change in interest rates that, that happened pretty rapidly off of a floor of near zero, uh, banks are kind of locked, their loan book is kind of locked in where they issued loans 
and they can only pay based on what their loan book is generating. So you do have, uh, especially on the smaller side, like small, you know, your local bank on Main Street that um, you know may have you know net interest coming in at like two percent from their loans, and they're not they can't be competitive on deposits. And it's just a matter of how sticky our deposits or our investors willing to you know go through the spend the fit you know with Geico's thing in 15 minutes or less save 15 percent of your car insurance well in 15 minutes or less open a bank account and start earning five percent in your cash and that you know it, some people probably should be doing that mm -hmm. that, that could lead to closures but these are um I think the risk lies more with small banks and that's not a, a financial crisis type problem. I love it, Bob. You're looking for the Geico sponsorship for our podcast. You uh, <laughs> trying to get their attention. So we're uh, going to blow through a couple of these next ones pretty quickly. I asked her about a recession and whether we're going to be in one or not. Uh, and I know that's something you and I have talked about. She thinks we're in a cycle of rolling recessions, hitting different segments of the market at different times, services, cyclical stuff. I, I don't know that that's something we need to go back and forth on. I thought it was I was interesting. I think she she shared that she's like us. She doesn't have short-term forecasts, but if you look a couple of years out, she's fairly optimistic about markets. And then the the final point which I I think is something you'll find more interesting and want to weigh in on is they like international stocks, particularly developed international, and they think that that's a, a cheap place, an attractive place and a, a good place to allocate capital right now. Yeah, um, in, on, on the rolling recessions, we, we have seen a lot of pain across markets. We haven't officially seen a recession, but maybe it, it has been enough pain on, you know, on the real estate front. Um, so some numbers came out yesterday, and uh, year over year prices on the Case Shiller Index are now negative about one percent in their core twenty city index. Um, and you've seen the layoffs in tax, so you've seen pain in different parts of the economy over the last year. Um, regarding international yeah like i said we, we've seen performance there and um historically that does go back and forth we've had a good run in the us and um valuations there are favorable so i'm in agreement with her that um you know that that's an attractive place to to be positioned right now so the other thing that you had wanted to talk about was an area of the market that I'm not sure we've spent a, a ton of time on in our past podcast episodes, but that's private credit. I believe you're seeing some opportunities there. You wanted to explain a little bit how we allocate to it and why. Yeah, I, I think there's an interesting story there. Um, and it it kind of just comes from the punchline of how clients are benefiting from tighter lending standards and benefiting from um, the, the mess in the banking system that started uh, with the failure of Silicon Valley Bank. So we've we have rise higher rates. Um, we've had some bank failures. So naturally, banks are a little um, have tighter lending standards. So if a business goes to the local bank and says, hey, I need to borrow $50 million, um, they're asking more questions these days. They're charging higher rates and they're saying no with a higher frequency. Um, and that's um, because they, they see more uncertainty and also some deposit flight in some cases, or um, just trying to run the bank a little more prudently. Um, so what that means is there's opportunity and um, private credit and asset class that we invest in. Uh, we use a manager called Cliffwater. These two funds by Cliffwater, um, they make loans to private businesses. 
Um, and they are seeing great opportunities right now because they're seeing more companies come to them that typically would get funding from the banks. And um, it's, it's a tough environment to lend. So they're getting more at-bats, more opportunities um, and, uh, you know, making loans that they feel are, are very strong and then getting, um, you know, attractive yields. So the funds yield about 10% right now. So um, it's an area where, where this, um, you know, the recent events in the banking system combined with higher rates, everything we just explained, it's benefiting clients um, through the private credit exposure that they have in their portfolios. Got it. Anything else on your mind, Bob, as you uh, think about this podcast and some of the stuff that we've been talking about recently that you wanted to share? No, I think that's good for today. I do agree. Uh, we did not get a uh, listener question uh, this month, but as a reminder, we do love them. So please send them our way at wealthybehavior at heritagefinancial.net. And Geico, if you're listening, this could be Wealthy Behavior brought to you by Geico. Uh Actually, please don't do that. I was just kidding. Anyway, have a great uh, month, everybody. And Bob, thank you for your insight as always. Thanks, Sammy. How to Build Your Next Million, Heritage Financial's newly released ebook teaches investors about the tools and strategies that can help them save, keep, grow, and protect their assets. This free ebook can be accessed in this episode's show notes and on our website at heritagefinancial.net. Today is a great day to learn how to build your next million. Thank you for listening to Wealthy Behavior. If you found the conversation useful, please leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and share this episode so those around you can live a rich life too. We appreciate your feedback and questions. Please email us at wealthybehavior at heritagefinancial.net. For more insights, subscribe to our weekly blog at heritagefinancial.net and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Check out my personal finance blog at thebostonadvisor.com. Wealthy Behavior is produced by Kristen Kastner and Michelle Kakinis. This educational podcast is brought to you by Heritage Financial Services, LLC, located in the greater Boston area. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast or that of the speaker are subject to change and do not constitute investment advice or a recommendation regarding any specific product or security. There is no guarantee that any investment or strategy discussed will be successful or will achieve any particular level of results. Investing involves risks, including the potential loss of principal.